Hi, this is Dan Corver, uh, pastor here at Dalton Hill Baptist Church. <clears throat> we're a small Baptist church located in Owasso, Oklahoma. We're small enough to know you, but we're big enough to serve you and for you to serve as well. Our vision is to rescue, restore, and return to service. Rescue a non-believer or a believer who has been hurt or is lost. Restoring them to Christ in fellowship with other believers with the desire that they in turn will help others along their way. That was one song I probably would have got up and sung with you, as long as I wasn't too close to the mic. But uh, I've told you many times on that particular one that when I was in college, a freshman year, we, uh, in fact, one semester I had to do 17 papers in one semester, and uh, we had to do it on, you know, obviously we didn't have computers, doing it on a typewriter, and you were not allowed to use erasable bond. And if you had three mistakes, it was automatic letter grade. Spelling mistake or anything else, and it had to be Travian. You know, Travian, your footnotes have to be bottom of the page, and you have to stop. So I had a little record player. I only had one record. <laughs> that song was on it. <laughs> and I played it over and over and over again. And on one particular paper, I had to redo it. I remember 17 times or 19 times before I got it. You'd get close and then you'd finish too far down on the page and you have to start over. And, uh, too many typing mistakes and have to start all over. So yeah, that song means uh, quite a bit to me when I think about it. And last week we uh, were working on Paul, if you recall, and we were going through the uh, part about responding as Paul responded and I said there's too much material, and I probably shouldn't have even gotten started on the one part, so I want to kind of go back over part of it, because I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. If you remember, we had, uh, like you said, we were done about 11 different ones on Paul, and we were looking basically to respond as Paul responded, is what we were looking at. And you stop and think about it, two, you can think about two real quick. How did Jesus respond to the people on the cross? Father what? Okay, or you go to Stephen when they were stoning him, and what did he say? Okay, so I think it's important how we respond to difficulty shows a tremendous amount about us, and so I think it's really important when you look at it. So if you remember this review from last week, and then we'll kind of go uh, some others. If you remember the first one we had, we respond like Paul with Scripture is supreme. Whatever Scripture said. In fact, you'll see it later today when Scripture pointed out something, Paul readily stopped and admitted right away. So I think for all of us, we're going through life. Is Scripture really supreme? That's what I hold to. So if we come across something that we had not believed before, hadn't thought of, if Scripture shows us, then that's what we need to believe. Much like uh, Martin Luther did. And so I think it's important to forget about denomination or forget about uh, anything else. What does Scripture say? The second one was that he was a servant of God. If you remember, he said in Galatians 1, if he was trying to please men, he would not be a servant of God, but he is a bondservant. So it's a willingly choice that he chose to be a slave. And so a good question. If I want to respond like Paul, am I willing to serve and be a servant of God? Because it's important for all of us as a servant of God, we will be 
having times when we're going to have to choose, kind of like, are you going to go get up and sing, Ryan, or are you going <laughs> to not sing? You know, at times a servant of God or a servant of man, it's not always easy. Uh, we also looked at then in Philippians 1, you remember he was a servant of man, when he said that anything he did, he wanted God to be pleased, but he said, I really would, I'd prefer to be in heaven, but you all need me, therefore I'm going to stay and to serve you. And so for all of us, a good question is just, uh, how well do I serve, and how well are my uh, actions saying otherwise? Yes, I'll help you, but I don't want to. That ever happened to any of you? Um, you say yes, but you really wished you didn't. So I think it's important for all of us to think of that. Last week, if you remember, we looked at also at silencing the critics. We'll look more at that next week. Any of you ever get criticized? Have any of you ever done something that you did in total innocence? Really trying your best to do things and you get criticized for whatever it might be? And so, in fact, I think criticism is probably what has caused more people to drop out of the American church than most anything. is criticism. And so if you remember uh, Paul, when he silenced them, he, first of all, he brought up his, this is in uh, Cor- uh, Corinth, you remember, he brought up his track record. You all know my track record. When he was at Thessalonica, he brought up his track record. I came to you as a mother. I came to you as a father. I was here. You all know my track record. So for one way to silence the critic is just get your life showing it. The second one he wanted to point out to him, if you remember from last week, was true greatness. You all want this. So he went ahead and said, okay, I'll just stop for one time and I'll tell you true greatness. In your definition, remember that's when he talked about how many times he was shipwrecked and he goes through all this great list. But he said that is not true greatness. True greatness is uh, when I am weak, relying on the Holy Spirit, then I am strong. And So I think for us to really think about it, because that's really when God gets the credit and he's the one doing it. Uh, the third thing he said about silencing critics is remember uh, basically when we stand before him true greatness would be what do we have to show for our life not what we show for our life here on this earth what do I show for my life when I get to heaven remember Paul says you are what I'm going to show and so they were misinterpreting because Paul wasn't coming to Thessalonica because Satan was thwarting him they thought he didn't care. Any of you ever been misunderstood? One? Okay, thank you, Grady. I'm glad it was just, at least there's two of us. You know, it's amazing how many times you can be misunderstood by friend and foe alike. And then the last one on silencing the critic, if you remember also, he uh, basically said that ultimately where our attitude is going to be revealed. Why we do things. So pe- people do not really know why our motive, what our motive is. And so we may have come to one conclusion and be wrong because the motive is not what it should be. And so when you think about it, silencing the critics is important when you want to respond like Paul. So last week we started, and I want to go back to it. So look over in Acts uh, 21, and we'll spend a little more time, not go through it so fast. And I think it's important for us to look at this. In Acts 21, if you remember, Paul is uh, bringing the money down to Jerusalem and he uh, gets arrested. And he'd gone through all the proper things that he should have. You find that in 22 to 26. And uh, so notice when you get to verse 27 of Acts 21, you have a riot takes place. 
When the seven days are almost over, he's talking about the days of purification. The Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began stirring up all the multitude and laid hands on him. If you remember, the ones from Asia basically were following him around and accusing him of things. Notice what they say here. I think it's interesting. On this riot, the false accusations, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. Has Paul done any of that? No. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. A Greek was with him in the city, but Paul never brought him into the temple. So I think it's important, they see it in verse 29, they supposed Paul had brought him in. So you have these false accusations. Have any of you ever had been falsely accused of something? Have any of you ever falsely accused someone? So I think it's important we stop and we think about it. So here you have this falsely being accused. Notice what they do then. So notice the acceptance in verse 30. And all the city arose. The people rushed together. They took hold of Paul. They drug him out of the temple. Merely shut the doors. And if you notice, they were planning on killing him. On what evidence? Hearsay and make of what somebody else said. And so the people are accepted the false testimony and they're out there beating him and if the Romans don't come, they're going to kill him. So you stop and think about it. <laughs> Paul is doing everything he's supposed to and falsely accused and being beaten to death and people accept. So I think it's important for all of us too, I think, to stop and think for a minute how quickly do we accept false evidence. It's easy to accept false evidence. In fact, do you how many people find it easier to accept false evidence than true evidence? Why is it we always want to believe the worst about somebody? So here they are, they're doing it. Notice they take matters into their own hands then. Notice uh, in verse 31 and 32, and while they were seeking to kill him. So you think about it, how long is it here before a report comes to the commander of the Roman cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion? And once he took along some soldiers and centurions, okay, and ran down, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Okay? They're beating him to the point where they're wanting to what? Kill him. How far along in the process were they? We don't know. I think it's important because you go further into the story later on. I think it's going to also help answer some of the questions. Do you think he might have got a black eye, do you think? You know, you think about it, all this stuff that's taking place. So I think what happens is when we read Scripture later on, we need to keep in mind... He's been beaten up pretty good. And if they hadn't come to rescue him. So you think about it. Here it is. But uh, give you an example. How often do I accept a false report and subsequently try to convict someone or go along with others in their actions? I'll never forget a story my mom uh, told me many, many years ago when she was young. A young couple went out on a date. And... While they're out on the date, they had a flat tire. Of course, if you think back that many years ago, we have a flat tire. Okay, so they they get back. Weather got bad, storming. Get back about one or in the morning or two or whatever. And somebody's looking out the window. 
sees the young lady drive up and her hair's all messed up and one or two in the morning and go to the house. What reports do you think they sent out about the young lady? Totally false. Got so in a small town, how hard is it to overcome that? She ends up committing suicide. Because of what? False reports. And how many people spread that same false report? And I'll never forget when Grady once said, well, what you need to do when you hear something, why don't you say, let's go talk to him. Let's go find out the truth. Let's go to him. What would have happened if people went and said, no, that isn't the story. This is what happened. And so for all of us, I think it's important when we stop and you think about it, do I really try to find out the truth or do I automatically assume the worst? We want everybody to assume what about us? The best? And how quickly are we to assume the worst about somebody else? So for, notice, the, first of all, then you have this riot. So then notice when you go down a little bit further as you're reading along in, the, in verse, you know, you look down on the request that Paul has. Uh, well, first of all, you, you can finish reading it when you look in the, they, they stop beating Paul in 32. 33, the commander came and took hold of him, ordered him to be bound with two chains, and began asking who he was and what he had done. And among the crowd, some were shouting one thing, some another, and when he could not find out the facts, according to the account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he got him into the stairs, it so happened that he was carrying the, by soldiers because of the violence of the mob. No, you think about it. How close is he to being there? How close is it to where they're going to finish the job? I mean, and you, you think about how many soldiers, a cohort, and how many men this is, and trained Roman soldiers. Do you realize to be a Roman soldier, have you ever looked at their training? You had to march 20 miles with 40-pound pack in less than five hours. When you finished, you then had to go at a brisk walk for 18 more miles before you could be a Roman soldier. They were in incredible shape. And the reason they were so good with the sword is because they practiced with wooden swords that weighed twice as much. When you can get used to wielding a sword that weighs twice as much as the real thing, what do you think is going to happen when you get the real thing in your hand? How quick are you going to be with it? They were trained, and that's what, they're, that's what they were. So notice then, he's trying to find out what's going on, and they... Why couldn't they tell the truth? Because they have all false reports. So none of them are, are speaking facts and he doesn't know. So he's protecting him. 36, notice, and the multitude of the people kept following behind him, crying away with him. Much like with Jesus, away with him for what reason? What, why did, in the Jewish audience was there one thing in the previous text or anything else that he had done wrong? He'd done everything in the temple, done everything that he should have done. And how the, the multitude got sucked up into it, being led by people who didn't like him or whatever, in uh, jealousy or whatever it might be. So then notice in 37, remember we want to respond like Paul. So you have this riot, and uh, you barely got your life spared. 37. Paul was about to be brought into the barracks. He said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian 
who some time ago stirred up the revolt and led 4,000 men of assassins out into the wilderness. It took Rome quite a bit to put down that deal, but they never caught, caught him. So they're assuming that Paul is what? But if he's Egyptian, he's not going to know. So Paul now speaks to him in Greek, and he realizes. So the Roman was wrong about who he thought he was. So notice he's going to get him. Notice what Paul's answer is. I am a Jew of Tarsus and Sicily, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg of you, allow me to speak to the people. How many of you want to speak to the people? I mean, seriously. I mean, they, they're, they just tried to kill you. But how, if we're wanting to be like Paul, what can we learn from him? And so notice then what he does. So his request, so they, obviously the, the uh, commander realizes he's not the Egyptian, false identity. So when he grants him permission, in verse 40, when he had given him permission, Paul's standing on the stairs, even that alone, you think about it, what just happened to him? I mean, you're beaten to a pulp. He motions the people with his hands, and when they were a great hush, he starts to speak to them in the Greek dialect, or Hebrew dialect. So he's speaking in Aramaic, so here you stop and you think about it. He speaks to the Roman in what? Now he's speaking to them in their native tongue, where they can understand it. Obviously, uh, why would you do that? If someone wants to talk to me, they're going to have to talk for me to really understand, talk to me in English. But if I'm talking to a Hispanic group, if I know Spanish, it'd be better for me to talk to them in Spanish, their native tongue. So he does. Notice then what he does. I think it's interesting on his, he starts now on his report, verse 1 to 21. He first of all is going to, uh, he speaks in their dialect. And then notice what he does. He brings up his upbringing. By the way, he wasn't asked to do this, but he's seizing an opportunity to give his testimony. Look what he says. Brethren, fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. When they heard that he was addressing him in the Hebrew dialect, they began even more quiet, and he said, notice his upbringing. I, was, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicily, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly under the, according to the laws of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. You're zealous for the laws. I mean, what would you and I be saying to them? That says a lot of how we're going to really respond to people. How are you doing it? So notice he's bringing this up, the upbringing. Notice then the persecution. Paul doesn't hide his past. I persecuted this way to death, much like what they're doing, trying to do to him, binding and putting both men and women in prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of elders can testify. Many of them are, are, would still be living and would be in that very place hearing him say this. Facts. How important is it to give facts? They accused him on what? Falsehood. Now let me give you the facts and let you judge. Notice he goes on. I think it's interesting when you look at it. From then I received letters from the brethren and started off to Damascus, which obviously is in Acts 9, in order to bring even those who are there in Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So he's talking about basically, you think about he's a persecutor. Now what's interesting, he's basically, when he says he's a persecutor, he is also saying what? I, I was wrong and I sinned. It's a lot easier to say when you're talking to someone to say your personal testimony that I'm a sinner than it is to do what? 
I'm giving my defense to Glenn. Glenn, you're a sinner. Well, you know, that's going to turn people off real quick, even though it's true. But when I talk to myself or talk to you and talk about my sin, you will relate your own sin and apply it to yourself. He's going to do this every single chapter throughout this book in the, uh, to the end. Notice and then he's talking about his, his uh, personal conver- con- uh, conversion. He uh, gives his testimony. Came about the while I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who are with me beheld the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. You stop and you think about some of this, see, going on. There's more than one person, the people that came from Jerusalem down to Damascus were there to hear it too. Could they verify and testament to those facts? Yes. You think some of those might even been here in this audience. So Paul's giving him all facts of what happened. So you keep going in verse 10. I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, arise, go to Damascus. There you'll be told all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not be seen, I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand by those who are with me and came to Damascus. We've also looked at Ananias. You think about the description under the Holy Spirit, a man who was devout by standards of the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Would they know who that was too? Okay. Came to me and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very time I looked up upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to bear utterance for his mouth. And from you will be a witness for him to all men who are uh, you have seen and heard. So what's Paul supposed to do? To be a witness to who? What are you and I supposed to be? A witness for what he's done in our life. You know, that's what I love so much when they remember they talked to the young man who was, you know, that I don't know, but once I was blind and now what? Why do we make it so hard? Just your testimony. Paul, when he comes here, his testimony. He goes before Felix, testimony. Goes before Festus, testimony. Goes before Agrippa, testimony. He doesn't have some miraculous. We make it so much harder to just be given our personal testimony. And notice then in 16, and now why do you delay, arise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name? And then notice in 17, so you have his personal conversion. And then in 17 to 21, you have his purpose. Notice it says here, it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And so I'm saying to me, make haste to get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And obviously that was true. They had to be let down. And I, saw, and I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to be in prison and beat those who believed in me. And when the blood of thy witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving, watching those by for the cloak of those were laid at him. And then notice in verse 21 his purpose. And he, talked about the Lord, said, Go, I'll send you away to the Gentiles. Now who's he speaking to? Notice their response. They listened to him up to this statement. 
Everything they listened to his testimony. Everything that he said, they listened to him until they said that. And notice what they said. And they raised him away with such a man from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Why? Because he said he was called to go to the Gentiles. Now, once you think about it, notice it as they were out, they were crying out, throwing off their cloaks, tossing dust in the air. They'd be both coming out. Basically, they're getting ready to stone him and do other things. But notice what they're saying. I think it's important. Did Paul ask for the audience because he wanted to give them his testimony and why he was doing what he was doing? Anybody in that audience could have heard the truth, right? Salvation's by faith. And what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, his resurrection. And notice the responses up to them. In the book of Acts, you're going to find two responses. In Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's writing to a Gentile audience. Here, they were told to repent, basically do a U-turn. Did Paul do a U-turn? He didn't think Christ was the Messiah. He met the risen Lord, and what? He does a U-turn. He's asking them to do the same thing. But I think it's important when we do this, how many of us are willing to allow God to do his part irregardless of what happens? Did Paul do his part? How many of us would have asked for an audience? And how many of us would have stayed hidden in the barracks? Why did Paul want the audience? Could there have been one person that came to know Christ? Because, Or like in his case, the goads with Stephen. Notice he brings up Stephen again. And how Stephen responded and what kind of impact it had on Paul's life. You don't know. So you stop and you think about it. Uh, uh, how many of you have ever uh, written out your testimony? By the way, you're going to find him give a testimony later and it's only 18 words. So depending on your time, sometimes the testimony could be long, sometimes it could be short. But basically, he's basically saying, this is what I was doing. I was a sinner. I met Christ died on the cross for my sins. I met the risen Lord. And this is what I'm doing. You and I do the same thing. Why is it we think we have to have some miraculous te- testimony? What the Lord's done in your life. So think about it. My job is simply give the truth and let the those that are there to respond. It's not up to me to tell them how to respond. The second thing that I want you to look at, so we have to seize the opportunity. So think about it. How many of you are, have a hard time seizing the opportunity? How many of you think about what you should have said three days from now? Okay, so I think really walking in the Holy Spirit, really trying to seize it. So let's look at submitting to authority. So you look starting down in, in 24. Submitting to authority, but also claiming citizenship. Now Paul's already been beaten by the... So notice in 24, the commander ordered him to be brought into barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him. So they were shouting, he's trying to find out why. To, to scourge him means what? Okay, a scourge would be a short whip with two or three leather pieces all coming off of it, quite often to have metal or glass in it. You stretch a person out on it, and then you start, and what do you think is going to happen when you start beating them on the back? Now remember, what's Paul already gone through? Okay, notice the reason he's doing it is they're wanting, basically, this to be waterboarding, wouldn't it? 
we're trying to, we're going to beat him until he tells us what's going on. Paul's already, you know, told them, but they uh, don't have it, so they're wanting to do this. Notice then what Paul does in 25. When they stretched him out on the thongs, obviously getting ready to beat him, Paul said to the centurion, who was standing there, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? You weren't allowed to scourge a Roman citizen unless without a fair trial. Have they given Paul a fair trial? No. They weren't allowed to do it. But they didn't know he was Roman. Now they know he's Roman. So now what? By the way, they weren't even allowed to put him in chains without it. What happens with you and I and our citizenship and so on that we have? So look at it with the 26 down into 29. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and said, What are you about to do? For this man's a Roman. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. Which obviously they'd be speaking in what language right now? Okay. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. Obviously buying it. Paul said, I was born a citizen. Therefore, who are you are about to examine him immediately? Let him go. And the commander also was afraid when he found out he was a Roman because he put him in chains. Could Paul have got him in trouble? Paul could have got him in a lot of trouble because what he did was wrong. But he didn't. Notice then the next day, he's wanting then to find out why he wants to examine him. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before him. So here Paul's got to have to do it again. What happened the last time you tried to talk to him? Third time you're up going against him. Paul looked intently at the council and said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfect good conscience before God up to this day. How many of us could say that? So notice he's basically making a profession. I have a clear conscience living before the Lord. The high priest, Annas, commanded those standing by to do what? Strike him. Okay? To strike him. Okay, notice then the high priest was not by Paul, right? And what kind of shape is Paul in? Okay, so notice then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) Uh, The reason he's saying this, do you sit and try me according to the law in violation of the law, order me struck. In in Leviticus as well as in Deuteronomy, you are not allowed to do that without a trial. And they therefore went against him. And the reason that it probably happened is they thought, how can anybody say they have a clear conscience before God? But the high priest ordered it. Now, a lot of people are saying, based on what happens next, let's look at it. But bystanders said, talking about to Paul, you would revile God's high priest. And that's what Paul's answer is. He said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For he's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay, so people said, how could Paul not know it was the high priest? And I think it's important when you think about it. Who is Paul facing? He didn't have the high priest by him. How long has he been away? And how well do you think you're going to see the next day after you've been beaten? 
or here or anything else. And by the way, who said striking? High priest, who said it here? I didn't say it. Who in this audience said striking? Who? Charlie did? Aha. Uh-huh. So I think it's important we have to be fair here on some of it. Could he know it was the high priest? He might have. Uh, but I don't, I don't think he just to strike him. And you're here giving the defense, and all of a sudden somebody says strike him, and next thing you know you just got hit upside the head. And then that's what Paul's it. Remember the first statement was, Scripture is supreme. And Paul immediately says, you're right. I'm not to speak evil against that pointed. And I think it's important when you stop and you think about it, when you have this, a clear conscience. How many of us live in a clear conscience? And how many of us, by the way, what the high priest did was wrong. But Paul addresses his and says, yes, I shouldn't have said that against him. Now, of course, the high priest doesn't say, I shouldn't have had you struck either. And he doesn't do that. But he should have. Until... That's what the trial is here for. But I think it's interesting what you have here. And it's a pattern that you have of Paul. Go back to chapter 16. When you have the submitting to authority and claiming it. And we know that this well, in starting in 19 of chapter 16, if you remember, Paul's getting annoyed because this uh, demon-possessed young lady Keep saying these in verse 17. These men are bound servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, wouldn't it be something wherever you go and the person is speaking to the people and say, listen to them, what they're telling you is the truth. In 19, notice then uh, Paul is annoyed and casts out the demon. In 19, when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into that marketplace before the authorities, when they brought him, chief magistrates, notice what they're saying here again. These men are throwing our city in confusion, being Jews, proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept to observe being Romans. Did they speak the truth? Notice what they do then. The crowd roses against them, and they tear their robes, proceeded in order to have them beaten with rods. Can they beat them with rods? If they're Roman citizens, haven't had a trial yet. Again, wrong. How does Paul respond after they've done this with many blows? And they put them and they then put them in stocks, again illegal. Twenty-five. Paul and Silas were what? Singing. Praising God. Everything that was done to them was wrong. And because of their response, and they don't leave, you notice what does it say in verse 30? The jailer says what? After he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be what? Because of what reason? Because of how he responded. And I think it's important for us to look at it. You'll then know on, basically when they're getting ready to release them, and notice you'll find what I was talking about, in verse 37, they're told to leave in 36, but 37, Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us in prison, now are sending us away privately? No, indeed, but let them come and bring them out. We're Roman citizens? That's wrong. He doesn't 
he could have actually pressed charges against them, but he doesn't. But it also can set precedence out to when he goes to other cities. Don't beat these guys for what reason? They're Roman citizens. Well, when we stop and you think that we looked at just two of them today, what about uh, when you think about it, how many of us are seizing the opportunities? Looking back over this last week, how many of you had opportunities but didn't see them? And they're all over to give a little testimony for somebody. And I think it's important for all of us to really look at it. And how many of us are so quick to believe false reports? It's so easy and quick to believe false reports. And we have to be careful when we listen to anything, radio or anything else, because there's so many false reports that are out there. The second one, submitting to authority. I think it's so important, even when it's wrong, submit to the authority. And then there is a time to claim citizenship. You go overseas, how important is it to be an American citizen in a lot of different places? That's not going to keep you necessarily from getting beaten, but it quite often will keep you from being uh, killed and can be sent back home. So there's that fine line. But notice then Paul never responded to press charges back against him. His goal was always what? Salvation of those people. We'd love for you to come and visit with us and fellowship with us. We're located at 8263 North Owasso Expressway, which is on the east side of Highway 169 North, between 76th and 86th Street North. We have coffee and fellowship from 8.30 to 9 Sundays, followed by Sunday school for all ages from 9 to 9.45, and our Sunday morning worship service is from 10 to 11. We likewise have a Wednesday night service for all ages from 7 to 8. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, and in every way the Lord be with you all the time.